Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I intend to cover Romans 10, verses 1 through 11. I can title this section of Scripture, Righteousness by Faith Alone. Our context is this. Paul, in the previous chapter, has talked about his Jewish brethren. He's answering objections. If God's promises are true, the promises God made to Abraham of land, offspring, and blessings, if they're true, why have so many Jews rejected Christ? And do not believe. And Paul says, well, the promises have been fulfilled. They just haven't been fulfilled with physical Jews. They've been fulfilled rather with inward Jews, with Gentiles. And then he quotes passages from Isaiah talking about only a remnant will be saved, only a small number will be saved. And and so therefore, the promises are still nonetheless fulfilled, even though it's only a small number of Jews that's been saved. And they've been fulfilled by spiritual Jews, i.e. Gentiles. Well, after dumping, after emphasizing that so much in Romans 9, a logical complaint against Paul would be, you don't give a rip about the Jews. All you care about is Gentiles. Paul is going to answer that canard in Romans 10. And Romans 11 too, but right now we're in Romans 10. So we'll start at verse 1 of Romans 10. Paul says this, brothers... My heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. The them is the Israelites. Now, when Paul says brothers, he could be talking to all the brothers at Rome, Jews as well as Gentiles. I think he probably is. He could actually be referring just to the Jews. Brothers, my heart's desire is for them, referring to all the Jews, even though he's directly addressing the Jews. It doesn't matter. Now, notice Paul says his heart's desire and prayer to God is for their salvation. He's praying for people's salvation that he knows. He's praying for a group of people that he knows, very few of whom are going to believe. That's hard to do. I prayed for a lot of people that it's very hard to see how they're going to believe they're so hard sunk in their sin. But Paul prayed for them anyway. Application point. Let's pray for those hard-hearted people. Let's pray for the secular progressives, gender-bending, gender noxies who can't tell the difference between a man and a woman and who want to throw Christians and find them and drag them before human rights commissions because they have the audacity to say that only women can have babies, that kind of thing. Let's pray for them. You never know. Some of them are going to get saved. Now, Paul is talking about in verse 1 that his concern is for the Jews' salvation. He really had to emphasize this, as I pointed out, because of all the things he had said previously in chapter 9, only about a remnant of Jews being saved. To show his concern for the Jews, which he had mentioned earlier in the previous chapter, Romans 9, 3, For I can almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. Yeah, Paul, he cared about his Jewish brethren. He cared about them enough to where he hyperbolically says that he almost wishes he could go to hell if it meant he would go to hell instead of them. Of course, I do not believe that means to be taken literally. Nobody thinks that because nobody would be that stupid. Romans 10.2, I can testify about them, about the Jews, that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. When Paul was an Orthodox Jew, he went around arresting Christians. Yeah, he had zeal for God. Why was he doing it? For his own personal ambition? No, because he cared about God. I tell you, the most persecuting people in the world are people who have a false idea of God and they're convinced that they're doing God's work when actually they're doing the devil's work. There's nothing more dangerous than that sort of person. Paul was sincere. The Jews are sincere, but it's not good enough to be sincere. One must also be right. As Steve Ackerson says, one might sincerely think that thin ice will hold one up out of the water. And you can still drown when you walk on that thin ice. 
Here's an example of what the Jews were zealous for, according to John Gill. They were zealous for the unity of God. What is what is it? The Shammai, Hero Israel, that the Lord thy God is one God, Deuteronomy 6. They were zealous for the word of God. Remember, Jesus, in all of his conflicts with the Pharisees, he never complained about their view of the Scripture, and the Pharisees never complained to Jesus about the, their view of, the, of Jesus' view of the Scripture. Why? Because the Jews loved the word of God, and they held it be, to be the inspired word of God. So they were zealous for that. They were also, of course, more particularly zealous for the Mosaic Law, as is well known. So Paul is trying to say, look, He's trying to say some good things about the Jews. He just finished saying will not come into the faith because of their obstinacy and because they're trying to keep the law by works. But he's trying to say some good things. You know, they have zeal for God. But unfortunately, their zeal is not according to knowledge. They were ignorant of how to get righteousness. They were ignorant of the gospel. And so Paul's trying to disabuse them of that ignorance. We go to Romans 10.3. Paul continues, because they, the Jews, disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. Now, how did the Jews do that? Well, they tried to keep the law and say, look at us. We're good people because we're keeping the law. Therefore, God accepts us as his people. And of course, that doesn't work. Paul continues, they, the Jews, have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. So there's a contrast in this verse between the Jews' righteousness, their own righteousness, and God's righteousness. Another contrast, another way we can say it is the contrast between works righteousness and God's righteousness. Works righteousness is righteousness that you try to get by trying to keep the law. But let's look at God's righteousness. Paul's already mentioned that in Romans 1 verse 17. For in it, in the law, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And what Paul is saying, even in the Old Testament, he's quoting Habakkuk 2.4, talking about Abraham even in the Old Testament scriptures, his faith, how you get justified, and he, he goes through that. But he talks about God's righteousness. Where does it come from? Keeping the works of the law? No, from faith to faith. And that either means from one justified person's faith to the next justified person's faith, or it means from one level of faith in one person to a next higher level of faith in that same person. I'm not really sure which it is. It doesn't really matter. But because the main point is that God's righteousness is the kind that comes from faith, not from works. Own righteousness, when Paul says the Jews tried to establish their own righteousness, what he means is righteousness that comes from human effort. Notice this is a binary either-or situation. You either go with the righteousness from God by faith, or you go from self-righteousness, works righteousness, righteousness from the law. It's one or the other. Because Paul said they disregarded the righteousness from God. Why? Because they didn't submit to God's righteousness and they tried to establish their own righteousness. And so by trying to establish your own righteousness, you are disregarding God and you are disregarding God's righteousness. This is a good application for those self-righteous civic people who are good husbands and good wives. And they raise good children and they keep the law and they do civic deeds and they go to the Rotary Club. You know the type. The kind that give speeches at college, secular colleges, graduations, talking about serving humanity. We go to Romans 10.4. Paul continues, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now this is New Covenant theology, advocates, precious and favored verse. Because it says that Christ is the end of the law. What does it mean, the end of the law? Well, there's two options. It could be the termination of the law. But, of course, now Reformed people say that the law is not terminated. They divide the law up into three parts. The moral law, the civic law, or the civil law, and the judicial law. Excuse me. They divide the law up into three parts. 
the moral law, the civil law, that's laws against stealing and rape and murder, and the ceremonial law, the Sabbath day, the Levitical sacrifices and so forth, and they say that the civil and judicial, the civil and the ceremonial parts of the law have been done away with, but the moral law is still here. Does Paul say that in Romans 10, 4? No, he says Christ is the end of the law. Now, what does end mean? There's two ways you can look at it. One is it can mean termination or cessation. Christ is the end of the law. That's it. It's over. Kaputsky. Another way you can look at it is that Christ is the goal of the law. Just like the end zone is the goal of the football team, that's where the goal posts are. It's the end of the law. It's the culmination, the fulfillment, the object, the aim of the law. Jesus is the culmination of the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the object of the law. Jesus is the aim of the law. Jesus has brought the law to completion by completely obeying its commands, by fulfilling its types and prophecies. Yeah, well, I'll go for that. But guess what? When he's done all that, what happens to the law? It's terminated. It's over with. All of it. All three parts of it. When you have a contract and one party fulfills the terms of the contract, guess what legal effect that contract has? Absolutely none because it is terminated. I remember teaching business law so much and I, and I would say when party A and party B have performed the terms of the contract, the contract is terminated. And then I would go into a section of my notes on termination of contracts. Terminate. End. The contract is over. You put it in the file cabinet. Maybe you can use it for a template for a future contract. But as far as that contract is, it is nugatory. It is dead. It is over with. It's gone. Now, is there much distinction between the end of the law and this idea, option one, that the law, Christ is the end or the termination of law, and option two, that he's the goal of the law? No, because once the goal is finished, the the covenant is ended. Once the Mosaic covenant is fulfilled by Jesus's active and passive obedience. Once it's fulfilled and the aim of the law has been fulfilled, all that, all the prophecies, all the types, everything pointing to Christ, and once it's been fulfilled by Christ, well, then the law is finished. It's over. It's terminated. I really don't know what's so hard about this. I know, I know what's made it hard is Reformed theologians. The, the third use of the law. The law is a rule of life. They just insist on that to great theological confusion, in my humble opinion. Now, why is Christ the end of the law, the termination of the law, or the fulfillment of the law? Why? For righteousness. And then IV translates that, that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So Christ is then the law for the purpose of righteousness, for the goal of righteousness. So in other words, you want to get righteous, you better leave the law behind. As Paul says over and over again in the book of Romans, I won't quote you those verses. Well, yes, I will. I'll quote you one verse right here in Romans 8, 3 through 4. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh. In other words, you can't keep the law because your flesh is weak. So therefore the law is limited in its ability to give you righteousness. What the law could not do, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh. The law can't condemn sin in the flesh. But Jesus did. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's domain. He sent Jesus down here into the sinful world as a sin offering, sin offering when he died on the cross. In order that the law's requirements would be accomplished in us. In other words, all that holiness and perfection and morality and all that stuff that's in the Mosaic law, it's accomplished in us. How? Because Jesus, because God sent Jesus in the flesh? That's how it's accomplished. Not by keeping the Mosaic law, but by keeping the law of Christ. The law, if we do that, the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh. That means according to the law. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we're led by the Holy Spirit to keep the commands of Christ, and that's how we get righteousness. 
Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, of course, that verse is used by reformers to say, see there, Jesus is not meant to destroy the law. Well, they forget to mention that Jesus is speaking before the cross, before the initiation of the new covenant. He's talking about, he's talking under the old covenant, and he said, I'll not come to destroy the law of the prophets until all is accomplished. On the cross, he did mention that. The reformers often don't mention that next little part about until all is accomplished, until everything is fulfilled. So Jesus came to fulfill that law, but that doesn't mean the law is still around. He fulfills it, and then the law is kaputski. We go to Romans 10:5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law, colon, the one who does these things will live by them. Now Paul is quoting Moses. He says, Moses writes, where did Moses write? In Leviticus 18:5, Moses said, keep my statutes and ordinances. This is, he's speaking in God's voice. Keep my, God's, statutes and ordinances. A person will live if he does them. I am Yahweh. Yeah, you could live if you kept all the laws. There's just only one problem. There ain't nobody in the world that can do it except for Jesus. Deuteronomy 6.25, Righteousness will be ours if we are careful to follow every one of these commands before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Now, who is Paul talking about when he says the one who does these things will live by them? Well, there's one option is, is that Paul is referring to a Jew who is trying but failing to keep the law because he can't do the things of the law. And that would emphasize his point is, forget the law, you can't be righteous by the law. The works of the law will never accomplish righteousness. He could be emphasizing that, or he could be emphasizing the fact that there was one who did keep the law. That was Jesus. The one who does these things will live by them. That would be Jesus. I'm not sure what Paul, who Paul was referring to. My tendency is to think that he is thinking about Jews who cannot keep the law, but think they can keep the law. Why did Paul quote Moses here, saying, when Moses says, keep my statutes and ordinances, a person will live if he does them. Why did Paul mention that here? He was probably trying to anticipate an objection. A Jew might say, hey, we've got Moses' law that God gave us for salvation. We don't need Jesus. we got the law. All we have to do is keep it. And Paul is pointing out that, hey, nobody can keep the law. So your objection is no good. Just because you have the law doesn't mean you're righteous. We go to verses 6, 7, and 8 in Romans 10. But the righteousness that comes from faith, the but there is to show a contrast between the righteousness that, com righteousness that comes from the law by keeping it, as opposed to the righteousness that comes from faith in verse 6. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Excuse me. Who will go up to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message of faith that we proclaim. Now at first blush, this verse seems a little bit obscure, but let's go to in the part of the Old Testament that Paul is quoting here, and look at that first, Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 13. This is Moses speaking. It is not in heaven so that you have to ask who will go up to heaven. What is the it? The law. The law is not in heaven so that you have to ask who will go up to heaven to get it for us, to get the law, and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. And it is not across the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea, get it for us, and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it. Now Moses was referring to the law, and what he's trying to say is, look, you can keep this law. Don't tell, don't tell me that this law is above your capabilities. Now he didn't mean keep it perfectly because nobody could do that. But the basic stuff, you know, the Ten Commandments, don't perjure yourself in court, don't steal your neighbor's wife or lust after her, and, and don't lie, and what else? Uh, you know, don't have idols. You can do that. 
but they couldn't do it perfectly. But the main point that Moses is making is that, look, obedience is accessible to you. And what Paul is doing when he quotes this verse in Romans 10 here is to show that righteousness is accessible to you. And, of course, he means perfect righteousness, the righteousness that comes from being declared righteous in heaven, justified. So now how does he do it? He's, Moses said you, you can't go up to heaven to get the law. And Paul says you can't go up to heaven to bring Christ down because he's substituting Christ for the law now. Jesus has already come down from heaven. What you need to go up there and bring him down for? Ain't nothing you can do using your strength and your good looks and your money and your power and your social standing and all the stuff that you have. No, that's not going to do any good. Or will we go down into the abyss? Paul's saying, you really going to go into the grave and pull Jesus up from the dead? Uh, you don't need to do that. He's already done that. He's already resurrected from the dead. What does your power have to do with that? What does your flesh have to do with that? What does your keeping the law have to do with that? Now, Paul says, who will go down into the abyss? Moses in Deuteronomy 30.12 says, the law is not across the sea. Paul says, in the abyss, that's close because sea could mean the abyss. The water is deep in the sea. The pronoun's a little bit different, but, you know, pronoun's a little bit iffy when translations. The idea is you're not going to go across or into the sea in order to get either the law or Christ. You, you don't need to do that. Your works are not going to do it. On the contrary, what's he comparing now, remember? Righteousness from the law and righteousness from faith. But on the contrary, opposed to righteousness according to the law, which he mentions in verse 5, the righteousness that is from the law, the one who does these things will live by them, he mentions in verse 5. But he says, on the contrary, what does it say? And the it refers to the righteousness that comes from faith. On the contrary, what does righteousness that comes from faith say? The message is near you. In other words, you don't have to go into the sea. You don't have to go up to heaven. It's right there in you. Where? In your mouth and in your heart. That's pretty close. Can't get any closer than that. That's the message of faith that we proclaim. In the next verse, he's going to talk about mouth and heart, mouth and heart, mouth and heart. This is the message of faith. Again, there's the contrast between law and faith, law and faith. It's everywhere in the book of Romans. So to sum up here, the NIV Study Bible says that Paul is trying to show that righteousness that comes from works required heroic works, like going up to heaven to bring Christ down. That's a heroic work. Or going down to the abyss to bring Christ up. That's an heroic work. But the righteousness that comes from faith does not require such heroic action because there are scriptures which show the impossibility of going up to heaven. I mean, logically we know that, but there's another scripture, Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his hands? Who has bound up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is the name of his son, if you know? It's a little prophetic foreshadowing of Jesus. He can do all that. He can go up to heaven and come down, but you can't, we can't, human beings can't. Now, when Paul says this is the message of faith that we proclaim, he is quoting an Old Testament scripture when he says, on the contrary, the message is near you in your heart and in your mouth. He's quoting Deuteronomy 30, 14. He's quoting Moses, who says this, but the message is very near you in your mouth and in your heart. And, of course, that's the message of the law when Moses was doing it. But Paul is substituting Christ for Moses, the message of the gospel. So Paul changes it to God's word as it is found in the gospel. The message that Paul is, talk is talking about is the gospel, not, not the Mosaic law. Steve Axelson has another one of his homely metaphors. He says, salvation is as close as one's heart. 
but the distance between the head and the heart is about 18 inches because people in their head, they have head knowledge about God or head knowledge about Jesus, but they don't believe in their heart. And 18, so 18 inches is how close some people come to salvation and miss it. Lots of seminary professors, lots of college professors talk, speaking in their religion classes. We go to verse 9 in Romans 10. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Again, now he's going to go into heart and mouth. That contrast he made in verse verses 6, 7, and 8, he's going to make it again here in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, the NIV Study Bible points out this is the earliest Christian confession of faith. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. It, this confession of faith was probably used at baptisms. Can you say that Jesus is Lord? Yes, Jesus is Lord. I'll now baptize you in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That word Lord in Greek is kurios. Kurios. It's used over 6,000 times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, 6,000 times to translate Yahweh. So when one said, when you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, it doesn't mean really that Jesus is your master, which of course that's true, but that's not really what the import of this confession is. The import is Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is divine. He's God. Now you confess with your mouth, but you don't confess without believing in your heart. Otherwise, it becomes an empty profession, a rote confession that means nothing, kind of like faith message people do. I, I believe for a Rolls Royce. I believe with my confess with my mouth, but they don't really believe in their heart. And so they don't get the Rolls Royce. No, you got to do both. It's not either or. It's both. you got to believe in your heart. Now, your heart, as the NIV Study Bible says, is not only the seat of your emotions and affections, your emotions, it's also the seat of the intellect and the will. So this is how I always think about it. The inward part of man is mind, will, and emotions. That's the best way to look at it. Now, of course, some people say that mind, will, and emotions, you have to add the spirit, and that's part of the soul. And then some people say, no, that's a separate part that's not a part of the soul. And then other people say that heart is just talking about the internal part of man. So let's just say mind, will, emotions, and the spirit, the part that can spiritually commune with God. But at any rate, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your emotions, you've got to believe that Jesus that God raised Jesus from the dead. You just can't believe it with your mind alone. Now notice in this confession of how do you get salvation by righteousness, this confession of how you get saved involves confessing and believing that God raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection is such a key part of the gospel of the apostolic witness. Let me give you some examples of that. 1 Corinthians 15:4. this is Paul. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, again, Paul. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation, and so is your faith. So resurrection is fundamental and foundational to your faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. So the resurrection is key. You deny the resurrection, you ain't a Christian, my friends. Oh, you might have the label. But you're not going to heaven. Let's put it that way in stark terms. You're going to the other place. you got to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. Now, a, another example of this, and this is a good one in Acts. I'm going to show you Peter four times evangelizing in four different places. And in every one of those places, he mentions the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. First of all, in Peter's Pentecostal sermon, Acts 2, verse 31 through 32. Seeing this in advance, Peter says, he... This is God spoke concerning the resurrection of the, of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. So Paul says God spoke concerning 
the resurrection of the Messiah. He's quoting an Old Testament psalm there that David was not left in Hades. And, of course, David's the type of the antitype Jesus being not left in Hades, not left in death. His flesh did not experience decay. So there's your resurrection in the Pentecostal sermon by Peter. Then Peter later on was preaching at Solomon's porch on the temple in Acts 3, verse 15, and he says this, You, meaning you Jews, kill the source of life whom God raised from the dead. <laughs> I imagine the Sadducees didn't like hearing that. All right, that's the second place where Peter mentions the resurrection of the dead. Here's the third place. This is Peter before the Sanhedrin when he got arrested for preaching in Acts 3. In Acts 4, he's arrested him before the Sanhedrin, and this is what he says. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, and whom God raised from the dead. In other words, you big-shot Jews put him in the grave, and God pulled him back out again. And then one more instance, Peter is at Cornelius' house, the Gentile soldier, Roman soldier, in Caesarea. Acts 10, 40 Peter says this to the assembled people in Cornelius' house. God raised up this man. God resurrected him on the third day and permitted him to be saved. So you see everywhere is resurrection, resurrection, resurrection of Jesus. So that needs to be a part of our belief. Now, Paul in Romans 10, 9 didn't say to confess that. He just said Jesus is Lord. But he says believe in your heart. The other things, I'm assuming both go together. So a good way to, at a baptism, in my opinion, is to say, uh, Susie Q, can you confess that Jesus is your Lord? Yes. Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Yes. Do you believe now that you are saved? Yes. Now, notice the future tense. You will be saved after you make that confession and after you believe in your heart those things. You will be saved. Well, I've always taken that to mean you will be saved after you make your confession in, of what you believe in your heart. And you will be saved. And I think that's what it does mean. But the, but the NIV Study Bible suggest that maybe Paul is referring to the final salvation at the last day. You confess, you believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, and you confess this with your mouth that he is Lord, and then on the last day you will be raised up, you will be saved. In other words, ultimate salvation, not just spiritual salvation during this life. Well, it could be. I don't know. Both, is tr both are true. This idea of confessing, I think, is important. I know that when people confess that Jesus is Lord, it it confirms something in their heart. That's why I always at baptisms always make them say it. You know, I want, to, I want to hear you say it. I want to hear you say it in front of these witnesses. I also add things like this, and I will also follow you until the day that I die. I put stuff like that in there too because, hey, I want this thing to be a big deal that they're going to believe Jesus forever. I really think it makes a difference. Now, this idea of confession. I remember I had a roommate one time. I really liked this guy. He was a good friend of mine, my college roommate. And he was dating this girl, and he started sliding into, well, he, he, he I can't remember whether I led him to the Lord or somehow, but anyway, he got saved while he was rooming with me. I think it was me. And so I was really excited about that. And then he starts asking me about his girlfriend, his unsaved girlfriend, and then he starts asking me, how far can he go with it still not be sin? You know, he was, and boy, he talked, he'd gotten, he'd crossed the line. And then the next thing I hear him talking about, he says, well, you know, my, my faith is a private, it's a, my religion is a private religion. My, my faith is private. I don't, I don't believe in going around telling people about it. And right then I suspected his salvation. And I still do for that matter. Because after that, he ended up leaving college. He became a practicing homosexual, died of AIDS in his 40s. I still remember the phone call I got. Bill is dead. Well, 
I think he'd have been much better to openly proclaim Christ to forget his sexual sins because he might have lived, he might still be living today. It's really a tragic story. So anyway, confession is an important thing. Let me read you Mark eight thirty eight. For who this is Jesus speaking, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes to the glory of the Father with his holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me if you are so private about your religion, is why? It's because you're ashamed of him. And Jesus says, Jesus is going to be ashamed of you when you meet him, when he comes, whenever that coming is. Matthew 10, 32 through 33. This is Jesus speaking again. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Now, not confessing Jesus is not quite the same thing as denying him. So, I'm not saying that everybody who is afraid to confess Jesus is denying Jesus, but it's close. So, if you go around and say, well, I don't want to talk about Jesus, that's private. But then if somebody asks you, do you believe in Jesus? Well, now, the onus is on you, the ball's in your court. Somebody's asked you, you better acknowledge Jesus before men so that you will be acknowledged before your Father in heaven. And you better confess what's really in your heart. How about Romans 1.16, first part of the verse, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. We better not be ashamed of the gospel. And I tell you, one way is to get filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit so that you will have power to witness, and then you will find yourself not being ashamed of the gospel. Romans 10.10, 10, Paul continues, One believes with the heart. Again, this is the heart-mouth, heart-and-mouth, heart-and-mouth pairing couplet that Paul uses here. In, these, in this section of Scripture, one believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Now, these are, these are parallel. The heart and the confession go together, and the righteousness and salvation go together, because you ain't saved unless you're declared righteous, which is done by justification, which is done in heaven, in God's courtroom. You are declared righteous, and that comes when you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. The heart belief is inward, the mouth confession is outward. Now, Jameson, Foss, and Brown make the point that confession, outward confession, is especially efficacious during times of persecution because that's when you tend to want to be quiet. And I've never been in that situation, but I can imagine when people are said, you want your house, you want your freedom, just say that Jesus is not Lord, we'll let you go. Otherwise, we're going to take your house and throw you in jail, or maybe we'll kill you. How about in Iran? I just read the other day that hundreds of thousands of people in Iran have accepted Christ. They're using illegal satellite dishes to hear Christian broadcast in Farsi. They're using tunnels or VPNs to get out of the Internet censorship in Iran so that they can listen to Christian teaching. They're meeting in homes because they can't meet in churches. Now, if they get caught, they get executed, most probably, or at least their family will disown them. They'll be kicked out and all kind of horrible things will happen to them. They won't be able to educate their kids. I mean, you know... I, but Christians all throughout history have done this. They love Jesus so much that they'll say, do what you're going to do, but Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is Lord, I confess with my mouth. Jesus is Lord. Verse 11, Romans 10. Now the scripture says, Paul continues, Now the scripture says, everyone who believes with him will not be put to shame. What scripture is Paul talking about? Probably Isaiah 28:16. Therefore the Lord God said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. Paul had cited that verse from Isaiah 28:16 earlier in Romans 9:33, the previous chapter. As it is written, 
Paul says, Look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, yet the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. What does it mean to be put to shame? Well, if you're walking down the road and you trip on a rock and fall face first in a mud puddle and you stand up and there's dirt all over you, you're in pretty shameful position. And the point is, if you don't stumble over Jesus, but you believe on him, you're not going to be put to shame. You're not going to fall down to the ground defeated. Of course, what Paul means by not being put to shame, it means you will have righteousness and you will go to heaven and not go to hell. That's the ultimate ultimate being put to shame. There's another scripture that mentions this shame idea, Isaiah 49, 23. Kings will be your foster fathers and your queens your nursing mothers and their queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down to you with their faces to the ground and lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who put their hope in me will not be put to shame. You want your house to last, build it on a rock so that when the storms of life come, so that your house will not be blown down and you be put to shame, believe in Jesus. And that's what's going to happen. He's going to, he's going to have you back for the rest of your life. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with Romans 10, verses 1 through 11. In our next audio, we will start with verse 12, go to the end of the chapter. And in chapter 10, we'll look further what Paul says about this problem of his brother and the Jews not believing. And he, in the course of this discussion we'll talk about what it takes to believe what faith means how gentiles and jews get born again and so forth so we'll talk about that in the next audio i hope you stay tuned for that one and i hope you enjoyed this one 